Great, now that you've all been waiting in anticipation, we can start. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to start off um, this presentation with some background uh, to set the scene. Um, I'll then hand over to Yaku to take you through the results of a survey that we conducted over a period of about four months, um, a lot of heavy lifting. And the survey will look at penetration rates, distribution, product innovation, technology, and regulation. We'll then move on to some relevant examples, companies that have harnessed technology and partnerships to overcome the challenges that we highlight in our survey. I'll then, we'll then finish off with a conclusion, key takeaways, and time for questions. Looking at the global premium 2016, we see that 24% of premium comes from emerging markets on the non-life side. 19% comes from emerging Asia, 4% Latin America and the Caribbean, but only 1% from Africa. On the life side, 38% comes from emerging markets, with 3% from Latin America and the Caribbean, and only 2% from Africa. So emerging markets take up a material share of world premium. However, Africa still lags behind and has only a very small slice of the pie. We'll look at various challenges as to why this is the case. Looking at growth, real growth, on the non-life side, we see that emerging Asia has by far the highest growth, around 6-7% predicted over the next year. Whereas, however, the growth in emerging Asia although the highest out of all the emerging countries, has been steadily reducing and is expected to reduce over the next year. However, Africa, although the growth is lower than emerging Asia, has shown signs of an increasing rate of growth. And this is on both the non-life and the life side. Looking at global insurance penetration rates, which we define as insurance premium over GDP, we see that penetration rates in emerging markets are markedly lower than in developed markets. And especially in Africa, where penetration is only 2.7% and less than 1% on the non-life side. Interestingly enough, South Africa has one of the highest penetration rates in the world at around 14%. Zooming now into the penetration rates in Africa and looking at more developed countries, South Africa, Namibia and Mauritius, we see that penetration is a lot higher than on less developed countries such as Egypt, Kenya and Nigeria, as everybody knows, has a penetration rate of 0.3%. What is interesting looking at this graph is that on more developed African countries, the life insurance penetration rate far exceeds the non-life rate, whereas in less developed countries, the non-life penetration rate is a lot higher. And the key reason for this is that people in less developed countries are really focused on the here and now. They are not really concerned about the long term. And they also do not have the savings to invest in long-term insurance products, as well as the capital markets are not developed enough to allow insurers to offer long-term products. 
Before doing our survey, we did a little bit of desktop research to find out what the key challenges in emerging markets are. So we came up with, with a few. Inappropriate distribution channels, which are driven by poor infrastructures, people living in rural areas who don't have access to towns, they have poor cell phone reception. There's also insufficient skilled brokers or lack of brokers to distribute the products. Um, there's a very heavy reliance on paper-based processes, both at the on-take of policies and the claim stage. Products are also not always suited. A copy-paste approach does not always work. Complex terms and conditions and, the Ill and illiteracy means that people do not understand insurance and the products they're buying. And very irregular income levels mean that normal products that work in developed markets do not always work in developing markets. And an unbanked community also means that insurers need to find different ways to sell insurance. Other challenges also a lack of trust, which are driven by intermediary fraud, poorly trained brokers who are not able to explain the products well enough, limited understanding of insurance by customers, and significant delays, sometimes up to two to three months, by which time customers have made different arrangements. Other challenges, poor literacy, and of course low income, and finally alternatives to insurance, such as community-based schemes, our very own, an example of which is our very own stock file that we have in South Africa. I will now hand over to Yaku, who will take you through the results of our survey and what companies are doing now to overcome these challenges. Okay. Thank you, Jean. So, uh, just uh, echoing Jean's approach, my name is Yaku van Amarab. I'm a partner at Deloitte, um, and I am a short-term insurance actuary, and when I'm not doing that in my spare time, I serve as an audiovisual technical support agent as well. Um, I um, want to say that although we are non-life actuaries, um, the survey and the results of the, 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 the survey that we're going to share with you now are not short-term or non-life insurance specific. So. Um, you know, our client base, which we sort of largely mined for the survey, are um, quite heavily biased towards non-life, but, but the concepts, the products, and the sentiments expressed, we found were actually quite consistent across, across the board. Um, right. So, as Jean said, so, so we deal with a number of these insurers and players on an ongoing basis, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and the question often gets asked, you know, Africa is such a large continent, so many diverse economies on the continent, opportunities for growth, and, and our clients are continuously looking for opportunities to grow. But there's always this kind of continual question around sort of where are the opportunities, how do we get in there, um, what are the challenges? And we thought, well, since we work with players and stakeholders on the ground, let's see what their perceptions and their feedback is through the survey and contrast that with guess what our own perceptions are. So this helped frame the objectives of the survey being, I guess, to understand the push and pull or some supply and demand side factors affecting penetration rate, um, seeing what are the actual challenges in growing and what are the opportunities on the other hand to grow. Um, we also, based on what John just showed you, we, we were quite um, sure that product innovation, the use of technology 
and sales channels were going to be important aspects. So we, we tailored the survey to drill down into those into a bit more detail. And then lastly, the impact of regulation, both as a potential push or a pull in terms of growing your business on the continent. Now, I, I say on the continent, so originally when we set out to do the survey, we were looking at economy, you know, emerging markets in general. Um, but uh, as John said, it was a mammoth task. You know, the one thing you learn is in, working in, a, in emerging markets is requires a lot of manual effort, right? So um, to get all our, our 21 participants to respond uh, took literally months and months of effort. So it is largely focused on the African continent. Within those 21 participants, let me say that they are participants. These are not necessarily licenses. Some of them are multinationals, multi-licenses. So there's actually, from a license point of view, a larger number. Uh, but we interviewed 21 participants, as it were. Um, about just over two-thirds of them were kind of your traditional um, insurers. I don't mean direct in the sense as direct versus intermediate. I mean direct in the sense that they are the insurers versus the reinsurers. And then about a fifth of it were composite life and non-life insurers. Um, the, in terms of volume that our survey covered, it was just uh, under 1.5 billion US dollars. Um, it wasn't always that easy to attribute the feedback to a particular country. The way that the survey responses were received and we had to engage with some of the multinational players meant that for some of the responses, it wasn't it was provided on a kind of a group basis, so it wasn't always clear exactly to which country it related. So there were a smattering of a few countries that we don't show on the list there where we couldn't really allocate it, but you know, to the best of our ability, the, the diagram or the table here shows you that it was a fairly even spread um, with, a, with a concentration of uh, responses by volume, premium volume, coming out of Nigeria. Um, interestingly, we also got some representation from India. Uh, I, do sh I also want to just point out that while some of the respondents had presence in South Africa, um, our question was not around their experiences in South Africa. We, we made it clear that we wanted to know um, emerging markets out on the continent outside of South Africa. Right, so one of the first questions we asked them was, what is your perception of your expectation of growth for the next few years in your particular economy or your market versus your own? Um, and I guess I was amused but not surprised by the fact that, you know, on the right-hand side, the blue bars show you um, the average estimates of what they felt their industry growth rate would be. And without fail, all of them felt that they would be exceeding the industry growth rates um, across the board. Now, I guess it's good to be optimistic, but I guess if, if everyone says they're going to be exceeding the average, then somehow the math doesn't always make sense. Um, but, uh, but it was interesting to note that the growth rates were, I mean, I guess fairly modest for, you know, you would expect probably a bit more in, in emerging markets and growing markets. Uh, but if I look at what uh, the speaker earlier this morning said, Alan Peddle, about the, the growth rates in China, the, 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 it's, I mean, we're talking double-digit figures that dwarf these. So it's really, it was very interesting for me sitting through his talk and a lot of the points he made I could link back to particular slides that we had as well. So before I show you, uh, as the audience, what they felt the, the answers to the survey responses were, I want to have something to compare to. And this is where I'm going to ask for your assistance. So as we aspire to be like our counterparts in China and very good at the use of technology, I'm going to ask you to whip out your cell phones 
and go into your convention app and I'm going to ask you to please vote for me on two questions. The first question is, as a player in South Africa, presumably, what do you think is the top growth opportunity of the items that we've given you on the screen? And we've used a little bit of the wisdom, the benefit of hindsight to, to, to go back to the future and sort of develop these options for you. We'd like to know from you, pick one option there that you think is the top growth opportunity um, or the top way to grow in the sort of general emerging market economy that you'd find on the continent. Oh, yes, sorry, I've underestimated my, overestimated my millennials. <laughs> Um, if you go into the convention app where you see the program, you'll see the one that's ticked uh, 1240, Growing Insurance and Challenges. Open that one. At the top there, well, I have an iPhone. At the top of that, just under the heading, there's a little bar that says five polls, a little green icon with an arrow. If you tick on polls, it opens the questions. See what I said about technical support. <laughs> Okay, or is, does anyone, has anyone not found that? I'm, I'll come up to you in the audience, it's not a problem. Okay, right, so please take one option there. Okay. And um, assuming that you've had a chance to read the screen, I'm going to just ask our support team just to move on to the result page. Oh, sorry, yeah. Oh, a little bit more time, okay. Oh, I, listen, I, hang on. I see that uh, the voting options have put the key risks first, which will be the next question. There's no secret, don't worry. So just please scroll down to the second option. You'll see it's the key growth opportunities. Personally, I'm going to vote for technology. And then remember to click submit, please. Okay. Then I'm going to move on to the next page and I'm going to ask you the other side of the coin. So of the eight options there, I'll give you a minute to read it, what, is the, what would you think is the biggest challenge to achieving this growth in these markets? Again, just check, check the one that you think is the top item, the top challenge or risk. Okay, I think that's probably fine. Um, can I ask the, the, the team just to show us the results? And for this I'm going to just, okay. Right, so use of technology. Okay, great, so that is the key growth opportunity according to you as an audience. And I'm going to just take a selfie so that I can remember this. When you're an influencer, what can you say? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so
So, um, okay, this is interesting because this is, I'll show you in a minute what the, what the, uh, the participants felt, but just remember that the use of technology in this instance was the, the, clearly the dominant one. Okay, can I please have the next? Right, okay, we're gonna have to scroll down here for the number of options, but this, these are the, the key challenges or risks. So, if you look at that economic conditions, just over a fifth for political climate, let's go down a little bit further. Consumers questioning the need for insurance, that's interesting. Okay, so we've got sort of three standouts, but the, the top one seems to be by a small margin that consumers question the need for insurance, or maybe you could frame it as sort of a, a trust issue as well. So that's interesting. Um, because again, this is not at all what the participants in country felt were the issue. Although your responses would have accorded with what I had expected going into it as well. Okay, can we go back to the slideshow please? Okay. So, this is what your respondents felt were the key opportunities for premium growth. So they felt that the best way to unlock growth in the economies was by developing new bespoke products that serve the needs of customers. Okay, it was the strongest one, the most dominant one, but it was followed sort of by a fairly even spread of technology, regulation, customer service, and just tapping into new markets. So, so I guess to some extent technology was there, but clearly it's not, not nearly as, as dominant as I hope I haven't led you to believe, but, but uh, as you have voted for today. Specifically on the new products that, they, that we spoke to them about, they mentioned things like uh, products in the agricultural space, you know, there seems to be a need and a desire for that, as well as in the cyber insurance space, which is interesting because when we talk about better use of technology, they actually were referring to way, the way that they handle claims, take on processes, maybe distributing um, products through apps, cell phones, online sales. So, so clearly technology features there, but these are on two different sides of, of, the, of the fence. The one is cyber in the sense of developing products for, for customers, and the other one is their own use of technology. I don't know if, if insurers start using technology more, whether they self-create a market for cyber insurance with uh, other insurers or reinsurers. Then on the graph, showing their responses to risk to premium growth. Again, it wasn't what you voted for. Um, here, they felt that really economic conditions, competition, and regulatory changes were sort of the, the dominant factors. You could potentially argue that political climate and economic conditions go quite closely hand in hand. Um, but it was interesting that the, the way that the responses came across to us, um, and we, obviously we've had to do a little bit of cleansing to make it presentable, but it seems that these, these items that they packaged are ones that are somewhat out of their own control to influence. You know, we can't change the economic conditions, we can't change the political climate, we can't take away competition. Um, the items such as technological challenges, lack of, you know, new projects, consumers questioning the need, a variety of cultures, those items they actually put as quite low on the, uh, on the, on the graph. And it's, it, to some extent, I wonder if there's maybe a little bit of denial just about the actual ability that the players in the market have to actually influence and drive change from within. Um, again, thinking about our example this morning in China, I think there's this sort of a, I think that if I can paraphrase, it was sort of a act quickly, fail quickly and move on. But whatever you do, do it quickly. For a regulator to do something in six weeks, you know, something's happening really quickly. So it's that kind of, I think, um, sort of opposite that we see here. 
Right, speaking then about penetration rates, we wanted to understand these penetration rates a little bit better. And then we asked them, so, okay, well, let's look at the demand side. In other words, you as players in the industry, what is your perception about what your customers uh, are experiencing and how that is an inhibitor to penetration rates? So the first thing that came out of that is they felt probably an issue for, uh, for consumers or customers was the cost of insurance. They think that the customers perceive products to be expensive, um, low value for money, but actually also they think that it's sort of comp accompanied with a general mistrust of the insurer, that you're selling me something I don't really need, I don't trust that I really should be paying this much for it, you're probably making a lot of profit off me, what is it that you're trying to sell me, it's a bit, it's a bit complex, I don't really understand it, um, if it takes you a long drawn out uh, effort, a written process to sell it to me, it's just, these things just create barriers. Um, the last one on there that I think is worth mentioning also was that they, f they thought that from a demand side, probably the distribution channels were not really well suited to the, to the market they were trying to tap into. Um, but overarchingly, it was interesting for us to note that the insurers, reinsurers, players, the guys we, we surveyed, they felt that like really, uh, like um, the vast majority of the problem in distributing it arose from demand side challenges. Um, when we talked about, sorry, on that graph, the one that's red, so the most sort of dominant one, the high cost of insurance, when we looked at that a little bit more, it, uh, the comments that were made, well, disposable income plays a role. Um, you know, what an individual has to spend on insurance is, is a significant determinant in whether they actually perceive it to be important and whether they're going to drop that money on an insurance product that they feel they may or may not need. So in looking at that a little bit deeper, we looked at GDP per capita as some sort of a proxy measure for that to just try and see if that relationship is borne out in practice and reality. And I guess you could say it is true. So if you look at these graphs, so the, the, the bars show you the GDP per capita for a number of um, different regions, and then the blue dots showing the actual corresponding penetration rate in that particular uh, country. So there, there does seem to be some evidence to suggest that you know GDP per capita, the higher that is, the better your penetration rates. But it's, it's actually a little bit more complex than just such a simple comparison. I mean, GDP per capita is indicative of a lot of other things. It's indicative of things maybe financial literacy, development, infrastructure, uh, economic growth, um, and on the back of that, perhaps also disposable income. So um, yes, there seems to be some relationship if possibly somewhat tenuous. Then we went on to trust. So we said, okay, well, you've said also that you think on the demand side trust is an issue. You, their perception is that customers have some degree of trust, um, but actually not as much as, they were quite honest that we don't think our customers trust us as much as they probably we would like and as probably as they should. So there's a degree of trust, but really it's not, it's not all that great. Um, and what is it that we think is driving that trust behavior? So communication. If we cannot communicate with our prospective markets, our policyholders, our customers, in a clear way, you know, we're just fighting a losing battle here. Um, if the perception is that we are just making money off of them and that products are expensive at their cost, uh, it's not helping either. Um, 
education is important, but it's important also, you know, in the same vein for people to understand why they buy insurance. Why do they need insurance? Or are you just pushing something onto them because it, it serves your commercial purpose? We then went one step further and we said, okay, well, let's look now a little bit at fraud. So whether it's from your intermediaries on the claim side. And I was, I guess I wasn't surprised, but what I saw here for me suggested that possibly the players were a little bit optimistic in estimating the levels of fraud happening in the business, right? So, I mean, if you look at the voting results there, they felt that the number of cases of fraud, you know, from the customer side, the vast majority of them felt that less than 5% of, of cases of interaction with customers were, there was a degree of fraud involved. Um, and actually, if you look at the impact of all of this, they felt, the majority of them felt that, that there was sort of very little to no impact. And that's not what we see. You know, that's not what we see from our, uh, you know, perspective of dealing with insurers in these markets, the anecdotal evidence we've gathered, the desktop research we've done. It does not seem to bear this out. And I guess the, herein lies that comment I made earlier about there's a slight degree of denial just about actually what we know and what we don't know. You know, and th again, using things like technology might just be the way to try and get a better grip on if there is leakage in your business and an opportunity to actually address it. Okay, so then we move from demand to supply. So the suppliers of the products, in other words, the insurance products, the insurers themselves, um, what is the impact that they have? You know, so so which, which factors impact their ability to supply products the most? And the one that they ranked the highest, uh, not by a significant margin, but the highest was regulation. So regulation, I guess, is seen as a double-edged sword. It's something that under the opportunities they felt can create opportunity by, for example, compulsory insurance, or, or, or maybe even they were, you'll see later they said that the government has a role to educate people about why they have insurance. Or, on this hand, actually regulation is a handbrake for the business, you know, in terms of the capital, the solvency, the conduct regulations, compliance, all of that. So it, it was interesting that that actually um, the respondents felt was actually holding them back a little bit. Um, we mentioned economic conditions, uh, coupled with low profitability, poor data, uh, lack of available information about your actual uh, customers, all contributing a sort of an even degree. But um, what for me what was interesting is the insurers will talk about low profitability here. And if you go one slide back, two slides, three, whatever, how many slides am I now? Perception that insurance is expensive is something that came from the demand side. You know, so or that was, at least this all came from the insurers, but they say we think that people perceive our products to be expensive, but a challenge for us is that our, pro our products are actually not that profitable. So you know, there's something to be worked out there. and. A hint that we got throughout the process is that expenses and margins are thin because the cost of distributing and administrating product and business is really high. Again, suggesting maybe technology has a role to play there. Okay. We then said, well, okay, let's talk about regulation. You flagged it as something important. So, how do you think this? What? How does this impact on penetration? So, 
market conduct regulation they felt would have, uh, all three items they felt would have a moderate impact, but they highlighted market conduct, more stringent solvency rules, and regulated investment markets. Now, these again could play in, in different ways. You know, stronger investment markets could work in the favor of the industry, could strengthen the industry, create trust. But on the other hand, some of them argued that stringent solvency rules could actually hamper them because it makes their business more expensive, the cost of capital comes with that, so how do I roll out products um, profitably when I have this constraint on it? So it, it was, it, it was a bit of a mixed match uh, view on that. So when you start drilling into it, you, you think, you, you get the impression that, well, regulation is, it's easy to blame regulation, but when you drill into it, it's not always clear exactly what, where regulation is working for and against you. Um, despite them all saying that stronger market, uh, uh, market conduct would have a moderate impact, uh, two I mean, sorry, three quarters of them felt that actually TCF was reasonably good in the various markets. And I guess going through our own experience locally of TCF and what that means and just how onerous it can get, I think there's probably also just a little bit of a gap there in just sort of knowing how tough a really fully enforced market conduct framework can actually be. Okay. Okay. Moving from regulation, we then went to sort of the other side of that, which was the government. So the role of the regulators and then the government was brought up. So, so what, what role does the government have to play in actually aiding penetration rates? And we asked this question explicitly. We, we expected possibly a wider range of responses, but there was actually a, a quite a good concentration of responses around things like, well, government has a role to educate people around the need for insurance. Uh, making them more aware of why they need it, how they must plan financially, um, maybe even introducing compulsory insurance. I mean, something that's, that's a very topical issue in South Africa as well. We had it in years gone past. We don't have it currently on, on motor and damage, but we've got the Red Accident Fund. So, the, you know, what role does compulsory insurance schemes have to play? And does that, you know, that's a whole debate on its own. How good is that for the country, for the economy, for the other insurers? I mean, that, that's a really interesting discussion one could have. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a, certainly a feeling that government had a strong role, particularly on making the public aware about the need and importance of insurance. And I, I guess you can see why the need is there, but I, I suppose I question, is it, is it the government's role to do that? Okay, so what can companies now do to actually then improve trust um, in their own products and the notion that it's value for money. So if we you know, step away from, say, the other stakeholders like the government, the regulators, what could they do? And it was interesting for us that they kept coming back to service. They felt that the best way to build trust is by actually servicing customers, especially at the point of claim. They felt that that is a point where a lot of trust was lost. You know, people, you, it's a hard sell trying to convince someone why they must part with their hard-earned money come claim stage, they don't necessarily get what they thought they had, that, that's one real way to break trust uh, and lose that customer for good. So they felt that prompt and efficient claim settlement and dealing with a customer was key. Um, communicating, so both in terms of making it simpler, uh, clearer, reducing the complexity of products, making it transparent, communicating regularly was all really important, as well as part of that is obviously educating um, both the customers and the intermediaries. Interesting that they, you know, ranked that item a little bit lower down, but 
for government, they have a contribution that was ranked actually quite high. Um, I mean, the item there that says use technology to capture claims, I think was really just a spin-off of the item at the top about being more efficient with customer service. Okay. Moving on to distribution ch challenges. So, again, so Jean highlighted that was one of our suspicions at the start of the survey. So, we posed a number of questions around um, distribution channels and we said, well, what are your views around distribution over the next five years or so? And there's a couple of questions we asked. The first one is, how are those channels actually going to change? And we simplified it down to brokers, or let's call it intermediaries, selling direct, and then working on with partnerships. Um, and consistently they felt that the use of intermediaries, because of sort of behavioral and cultural factors, would remain the dominant channel but certainly would shrink relative to both direct and partnerships. And there were some interesting examples given on partnerships around specifically the use of mobile phones and partnering with telecommunication providers and banks and retailers. But telecommunication stood out quite a bit. The next point was saying, okay, well, how, given that you highlighted partnerships as an interesting one, how is that going to change? And as I said, banks, retailers, and telecoms were the interesting ones. Microfinance institutions were there and they all are growing. Um, but uh, for us, the one that had the most sort of, seemed to generate the most excitement and ideas was the, the telecoms um, example. And right at the end of our slide, we have a few examples, one of which there actually is an example of partnering with a telco provider that actually did just that. Okay. The next question we said this, well, Okay, what about collections? How do you think the collection of premiums are going to take shape over the next five years? And the reason we ask this is, is because from our own experience, this is a particularly important point to deal with when you are rolling out insurance products into um, emerging or developing markets. Collection of premium that you're used to in, in a market such as South Africa does not, uh, or in, at least in some of the pockets where we sell in South Africa, does not work in the same way and it can be a real challenge. So cash payments, which is a still a, a predominant way of actually purchasing insurance, everyone feels is going to go down. And when I heard, again, Alan's talk this morning about you know doing business, not having cash, not carrying credit cards, we're really using them unless you really have to. Uh, I mean, I can see that we're generally moving in the same direction, maybe at different, quite different paces, but I think you know these influences mean that maybe there'll be some leapfrogging of experience in our own sort of uh, immediate neighboring markets. Um, the use of smartphones you see there, commensurate with that point, um, and again, microfinance institutions, the use of them to collect premiums. Okay. You'll remember that on the opportunities for growth, they, um, respondents were quite uh, clear that they felt that innovation or new product development was important. And when we spoke about innovation, we asked them, so, so well, what, you know, does that mean that you think your products are not necessarily suited to the customer's needs? And they said, a lot of them felt, well, generally it's there, it's, it's, it, there may be some deficiencies, um, but when you poke them a little bit, you realized actually most of them, the majority of them felt that the products may be partly suitable, but none of them were like really like brilliantly, 
perfectly meeting the needs of their consumers. So I think this is interesting because the examples they gave around how they have ensured that the products are suitable, you know, innovative products, tailored products, as I mean, as we list on the right here. If you look at that, that's not necessarily all that new, and it's not really pushing the envelope in terms of innovation. You know, yes, kidnapping, ransom insurance, specific pay-as-you-drive type products, sell, you know, using sell, you know, captive type funds, value-added products. These, yes, they can be tailored. You can use them to tailor the product. But I think, you know, if you want to be different, if you want to really innovate, I'm sure that you could be doing a lot more than that. And sure, there are examples, but uh, I, the impression we got was that there was probably not enough free thinking happening and, and more bespoke product design um, needs to take place. When we said, okay, well, if you need to innovate, how and where are you going to innovate? They felt that, again, claims handling. Let's find better ways of handling and processing claims efficiently. Let's find smarter ways of pricing. Now, I don't know that, you know, the designing a product and pricing a product, you still got to find the right price. Uh, I guess you can charge a better price if you can, for example, reduce your cost. So, so it will be interesting to see what, you know, what comes out of that. Um, but maybe pricing sort of should be taken along the lines of pricing and underwriting. Ease of understanding, definitely. Products need to be simple, quick and easy to sell, and the language needs to be quite simple, uh, clear. When we got onto the topic of efficiency, we also wanted to know, well, okay, where are you not and how are you not efficient? And the, the concept, the topic of paperwork came out. Um, if you look at the claims and the take-on renewal process, there's a lot of paperwork involved, right? A little bit less so on the take-on and renewal stage, um, but still a lot. But on the claims, when you get to the claim stage, way, way, way too paper-heavy. Um, and, um, you know, if you want to move to a sort of a radical, dynamic environment where you implement technology, have good data, this reliance and dependency on manual paper-written processes, it's, it, you have to move away from that. And it's, the, the longer you are on this, obviously, the harder it becomes to make that shift. Um, I'm sure you all have similar experiences. You know, ours to a large extent is auditing, right? So where we work with audit colleagues across the continent and you ask for data, you need to check a report, reserves, capital, calculations. Data is half the time non-existent. So um, paper and data, yeah, important. This was interesting for me. So we said, well, how, yes, okay, you all want to reduce paperwork. How are you going to do that? Fine, implement digital policies, systems, let's develop apps, websites. Uh, but actually, you can see there's an evolution there, right? Um, Alan mentioned earlier today that very few of the consumers actually use websites, they use apps. So there's already, you know, one step different. You know, the next step is clear. But what I found quite interesting was, um, and this is my own, again, personal bias coming through here, is, the, the, the comments were made around, let's rather use emails as opposed to printing. Now, for someone who's got 600 odd unread emails in my inbox day to day, I, I shudder at the thought of using emails more. Um, but 
f f this was important because it shows you that there's definitely, you know, in, in moving to uh, sort of a new level of use of technology and tools at your disposal, there's actually, there is still a bit of an evolutionary process there. The, the, the consumers and insurers themselves need to be primed and ready to adopt new technology. Sometimes it's not, you can't just repackage uh, an existing s a solution that worked in another economy. You know, there needs to be a degree of maturity or an evolution towards that. And then on that topic, technology. So we asked, well, okay, put your forward-looking lens on. For the next five years, what do you see changing as far as technology goes? And pretty much throughout, everyone felt that there would be some significant uh, upticks in the use of technology. Um, really, all of them you can see show significant improvements, whether it's using mobiles, tablets, using big data and cloud computing, as well as profiling your customers through maybe using social media data. Um, it was interesting, though, that uh, telematics and sensors, so I guess, you know, it's sort of sensors, geosensors, your driving sensors in your phone, heart rate monitors, those things coupled with um, telematics devices, well, they were rated as a little bit lower. I, I guess it makes sense. Um, you know, if you had to ask me, I can see a lot more pressing um, cases to use technology than necessarily putting heart rate monitors on individuals throughout, for example, the whole of Uganda. Um, but what in a comment I made to Jean when we were about to start the slide is, uh, it, it occurred to me as we were doing the preppers, uh, the respondents, and these are the insurers, they said that technology is a key opportunity for growth, the use of technology. But they also said that technology is not necessarily a problem for them. It's not for most of them. They don't see it as a big hindrance in their ability to actually grow. So I guess my response then is, well, great, there's your answer. So it's not a problem and it's an opportunity, so what's holding you back? Um, and I, yeah, that would be a good question to ask. I, I guess money always comes into it. Capital, costs, uh, effort is, a, it is significant. And then before I close off, I thought, you know, maybe just put a few examples on the page. Um, you know, in throughout the process of talking to people, they brought out some examples. Um, the desktop research revealed a few cases that were interesting, you know, apart from those that I've mentioned already. And I thought I'd just mention them because these, these were quite, I think, you know, enlightening to read. If any of the, I'm sure a lot of them will be familiar, but if any of them, if you want to get a bit more, we've got some nice reading material on it that we couldn't get through all of it today with you. Let me know, I'm happy to share that with you. Uh, but just for example, so the, the, the item on the bottom left blue block there, this one, is, uh, is Kilimo Salama, um, which is an initiative undertaken in East Africa where, um, and a colleague of mine who worked on that explained to me, said so, there was, it's particularly difficult to sell insurers to low-income farmers um, to try and get, as I said earlier, them to part with hard-earned money and pay for insurance with this sort of vague promise that, don't worry, we've got you, something goes wrong, we'll sort you and your business out. So what they ended up doing is creating a kind of a, a pooling of risk, and the way that the product or the insurance was sold was actually putting coupons in the bags of seeds that the farmers bought. So they'd buy it, there would be a coupon in the bag of seeds. From their point of view, it was still a fair and reasonable price for the bag of seeds. So it was, it was, you know, minimal cost additional because it was well pooled and it was well priced. Um, and all you had to do is activate that little coupon with your mobile. Then, 
it was a rule-based index-driven payout. So if for 21 days after that there was no rain in a particular area, you, having registered your coupon in that area, would automatically get a, a, um, a payout in the equivalent um, of seeds that you bought. So you'd effectively get your seeds replaced for your crop. So that, the anecdotal evidence that I got from, from my uh, colleague in Kenya said this was a really good example of how they instilled a lot of trust um, with the market. The idea that someone, the insurer phoned you up before you even sort of realized that you were in trouble and said, look, we know you've been having troubles. Here's a payout. Here's seeds for you. You can go um, and, and take that and kind of and try and address your losses. Fair enough, it's not directly compensating for the loss of crop yield, uh, but that is certainly one example where it moved in the right direction and, and the important message was addressed the trust issue in a very positive and affirmative way. Um, similarly, you've got in the middle the Sugar Insurance Fund board in Mauritius. It's nothing new, it's been there since the early 40s under different names. Uh, but it's an example where I guess the product was designed for the market, you know, being a mono sort of agricultural industry, sugarcane being the, the, the main thing, um, protecting the country as a whole by pulling the risk against cyclones, flooding, hail, that sort of thing. Um, and on a similar vein, African Risk Capacity or ARC, uh, which I would think probably everyone in this room is aware of. Again, sort of a pan-continental thing where we've got members of the African Union, 33-odd members, states uh, taking part, pooling risk, and actually um, managing to reduce premiums significantly by as much as half um, against um, perils such as drought. Uh, and that is really to address food shortage stemming from um, drought risks and perils to farming. So there's a lot of material, there's a lot of background and structure to all of these that you can go and read. Um, I mean, John, do you want to maybe just, I mean, some of the other examples that you worked on, so microinsure, do you want to just maybe just give some further feedback on one or two of those before I close off? Sure, thanks, Yaki. Yeah, so, so microinsure uh, and Cornerstone and Airtel Insurance uh, partner together um, to, to offer insurance through a mobile phone. So when you buy... Um, airtime cover, you automatically get uh, insurance. Started off as a free product, but now it's a paid product. Um, it's quite similar to, to Beamer. Um, so registration is very quick, it's two minutes. Uh, claims are paid within 72 hours, so uh, it's completely paperless. Uh, very, very small premiums, um, like 30 cents for $1,000 um, of cover. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a big, it's really harnessing technology to, to meet all the, the challenges that, that we went through today. Another uh, example is Jumo, which um, offers loans, very micro loans. Uh, their average loan size is about $16. Um, and they actually do all the, the credit, storing, uh, credit scoring uh, by, by uh, looking at the history of mobile, uh, mobile payments that are made. So everything happens on the mobile phone, the credit scoring. Um, whether you um, are rejected or, or given the loan, uh, the, the actual repayment of the loan, it, it all happens uh, on the mobile phone. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. And BIMA, Bima is, a, is a life insurance product, is it? Uh, yeah, so, so my, the Airtel insurance and BIMA, so the hospital and cash back. Yeah, okay. hospital and life products. All right. Yeah. yeah, these are fascinating reads if you have time. So let me know if you would like some of the material on that. But uh, yeah, so that really brings us to the end of our um, presentation today. I mean, in closing, I think the points are relatively clear.
clear, you know, for us at least at the end of our survey. The industry growth rates, people are expecting moderate, moderate growth, you can call it. Personally, I think it should be a lot higher given the, the kind of the context, the environment that we're in, the fact that we're emerging and growing. Uh, when I say we, I mean kind of on the African continent. Um, but in doing so, it's important to really target your markets appropriately through the right channels in a way that appeals to them. So in doing that, there are certain opportunities and certain risks. The key risks, at least from their responses, seem to be that the economic conditions and the political uncertainty is a problem. Yes, competition is there, political, uh, sorry, lack of new projects, all of these factor in, but they kept going back to economic conditions and regulatory changes. On the opportunity side, getting the right products, innovating, designing, developing new products that are actually bespoke, address the needs of the customers, overcome trust issues, and actually are delivered in an efficient service model. And the ways to do that is by using technology smartly um, and also in instilling trust with your customers. So for us, I think it was very enlightening. I think, you know, sort of reflecting back on it, none of it was a major surprise to us. Uh, what was just interesting is some of the comments that people made throughout the survey, you know, some of the anecdotal evidence, the case studies that they gave. Um, but for us, at least, it was, a, it was a really insightful exercise, and I hope same for you. I, um, I will, at the end of this, will collect the results from your voting process. So when the slides are uploaded onto the uh, website, we'll include your own responses so that if you ever want to refer back to that and compare them, that's available for you. But uh, that's all from us. Thank you very much for your time. We do have a few minutes for questions. Do you have see anybody with a question? Hi, Yaku. Uh, thanks for the talk. Really interesting. Uh, just a quick question. So, so that's Craig from Discovery. Um, do the large insurers in Africa look to South Africa um, as a leader in insurance uh, to look at like what we're developing in our products and trying to implement in their own markets, or do they look towards Europe? Do they look to the states, or do they look to the east? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And we, so my experience is that the the reference back to South Africa typically comes from insurers who are somehow connected to a South African group. So you've got a lot of South African insurers players who have strong presence throughout um, the rest of Africa. And in those instances, yes, the, the, the connection is made. But to the contrary, I can think of a number of examples of in-country experience where there's almost a, there's a certain degree of pride um, and a sense that, you know, and it's, it's the same on the consulting side. So where, um, you know, players from South Africa enter the African space, uh, the rest of African space, and, and essentially are seen to bring products that are South African trying to um, copy and paste and drop them in, uh, in, in another economy where it doesn't really suit it. So there's almost a little bit of aversion to that. Uh, that's what we encountered, to say, well, you're bringing something from South Africa that's not, that's, that's for you, that's for South Africa product. We want something unique to ourselves. So there's a certain degree of pride that I feel actually uh, worked against that. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question. So, yeah. sorry, that's, sorry, one more question. Um, in terms of the mobile, uh, mobile telecoms companies, how have they partnered with those insurers to sell, to upsell like sort of valuable life insurance products uh, to the high end, middle class or, or high end customer? 
Um, yeah, so if I can answer that. So you can actually choose the, the level of cover that you want. So um, you, you, if it's generally targeted at the, at, at the lower end, so it's, it's, it's typically, yeah, so it doesn't really cover higher end, but you can up to a certain point, you can choose if you want to increase your level of cover. Um, my sense that, on that, yeah, yeah I, I agree with John. I think my sense on that would be that the higher income earners would probably be not the ones you would target as much through the telecommunication or mobile channels. Those would, the traditional sales mechanisms would work a little bit more efficiently in the higher income brackets. Uh, but that's, yeah, it's not something we ask specifically. That's, I guess that's more our um, perception of what, what we saw. Yeah. I'd just like to respond to that, that last comment and question. Um, I'm on the board of a Kenyan um, short-term insurance company, and we assumed uh, that, you know, we in South Africa have the best system and just have to implement it. And you wake up to realize that's not true. So, for example, in Kenya... They won't, regulators won't allow monthly premiums. So all, most car policies are annual premiums. But the average person can't afford the annual premium, so he pays as and when. No debit order system. Uh, even the debit order system in the industry is, doesn't work because the banks have been reluctant to let money out of them to the insurance company accounts. So that's why, for example, PESA is so successful because the banks themselves are providing a very poor service to customers. Motor car insurance, so we tried you know, direct, just, you know, um, outsurance and, and my way and all the directs. And you realize that compulsory motor car insurance is compulsory in Kenya still, as it used to be in this country, for third party. You have to have a disc on your windscreen. And if the police traffic cop catch you without a disc, you're in for a heavy fine. So one of the big problems we had was when we tried this direct thing is, how am I going to get the disc? Because my intermediaries whether it be tied agents or brokers, the policyholder would get the disc as well as a, a, contra, a policy document. So suddenly we had to complicate the delivery of everything by actually physically being able to deliver the disc to, to the policyholder. So you, know, you, you make assumptions that you know, we know best in South Africa and you very quickly get realize that's not the case. Yes. You're absolutely spot on, Paul. And I think that comes back to the question that was asked about experience, you know, looking to South Africa for experience, I guess that, that's that very point that we make. So you, you take something from here, you lift it up and you try and drop it in another market where the perceptions, the the needs, the, the, the way of thought is so different. It just doesn't work. You've got to almost start from scratch and design from the ground up. Um, the Impeza product is a specific good example. It's worked phenomenally well in East Africa. And, and I know there were attempts to bring it back here, and we sort of had our own local version of it, which just didn't really ever kind of take off. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, that's a very fair comment. I saw two other hands it's over here, here right in front, and then there at the back. Um, thanks, Yaku. I just want to say thank you for the presentation. It was uh, really useful, especially um, the insights can actually be implemented in our jobs. I just want to understand um, the level of people that were actually responding. Was it your CEOs in-country or was it levels below? And then also, was it multinational insurers, so people like Sunlam who have subsidiaries everywhere, and like Allianz, or was it actual local insurers as well? Because that would give a good yeah. understanding of... 
perception? So, so we work. We spoke in country, uh, local in country, um, in, uh, and the um, the level of people interviewed were manager slash executives, so relatively senior. Uh, there were some multinationals involved, but we was actually the minority. So it was mostly in country. Um, uh, Yaku and John, just a, a quick question. Thanks. That was a great presentation. I noticed you mentioned cyber, K&R insurance, and also agriculture. I was just wondering if you have any more details about the exact products that had come up. Was that cyber for retail clients, for corporates, uh, K&R for retail, or K&R for your big corporates? Just what was the, the a little bit more detail on those particular products, yeah. if you've got it? Yeah. Can you, can you recall any of the yeah. details, John? Sure. Uh, we didn't go into much detail on, on that, so it was we didn't really drill down. It was just more kind of we wanted to get a feel of you know the type of insurance that would, yeah. that would provide opportunities, but actual specifics we didn't yeah. have time to delve in. I mean, what I can say is generally the response, uh, the way that the answers were um, presented to us, we, we we understood it to be mostly sort of on a commercial basis, so not not necessarily in the retail space. Um, I think there's a very limited appetite for purchasing that kind of product on, on the retail level at this stage. Yeah. Just in the interest of time, I've got a last question. Uh, thank you for your presentation. My name is Mokami Andaro from C3. So my question is really about the scope of your presentation and all the challenges you've raised and a comment you made about consumer education and then you asked whose role is it? Um, to sort of, you know, fill that gap. So my question to you, based on your perception, do you think these challenges need to be solved in a concerted market effort, or is it one disruptive company to sort of go into that market and do things differently and then everybody to follow? Thank you for that question. This is actually something we spoke about, we debated a little bit um, in the run-up to this presentation. So... So we work on, I guess, the commercial side of the insurance fence. So, so we design products, we look at you know, the margins, um, and we are very much commercially minded in the way that we try and build, develop, roll out, gain market share. But actually, insurance is there as a risk-mitigating tool and a technique. And if you look at these particular emerging markets that we're looking at, I think the role that insurance has to play as a, a sort of a, 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 a social Equalizer of sorts, protection. You know, you know. For example, the Kilimo Salama project to try and um, address, you know, risks to farmers, food shortage. I think you need to actually, you know, that traditional commercial approach is not the appropriate one. I think we should, in this instance, you know, you need to appreciate that insurance is there as a tool to take away risk and give some certainty. So, with that in mind. I think it cannot be up to one disruptive insurer because to me that, and I'm simplifying it, but that sort of is synonymous with maybe a more commercially orientated approach. Um, I think it has to be a concerted market effort. So I think, you know, we've said that the, the, the regulator has a role to play. The respondents felt the government has a role to play. I think maybe they've overburdened government a little bit in its role, but I, I absolutely agree government has a role to play. And insurance is, you know, if... You know, I speak to people, you know, who I work with or so on who haven't taken out medical aid, for example. I, it, it, like, shocks me. And I say, well, what about your family in providing? You know, so I, I see it kind of a, not just a commercial thing. I see it also as a sort of a, uh, a protection mechanism for people in their personal lives. So I, I do think if it's left up to one 
sort of action-oriented insurer to go and disrupt, I don't think it's going to have the desired outcome for the market as a whole.